Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Challenge. I am your host, Vanessa Ferlano, and today we are joined by Dr. Roberta Bondar, the first female Canadian astronaut in space, also from Sault Ste. Marie, where I am also from. So this is a true honor to be here. How are you, Roberta? Oh, it's delightful to be here. And uh, can you remind me, where are you coming in from today? Where are you call- or where are you dialing in from today? I'm dialing in from Toronto, eh? I'm on, I'm, I'm on my way to do field work, so I'm passing. I'm passing by a bunch of things, and hopefully, we'll end up at the Toronto airport. <laughs> Perfect. I hope you get there too. <laughs> Where's your field work? Where are you heading? We're following some of the migratory birds that go down south uh, for the winter, which is kind of a nice thing to get someplace warm where they're getting food. I get some bit of sun. Uh, so we're, uh, this trip is going to be going down to the Gulf of Mexico. We're still following habitat destruction after Hurricane Ian and the changes that have uh, been foisted upon some of these uh, very precious little birds. And are these, so you just, you're starting your exhibit, the or you're launching the exhibit, the Patterns and Parallels exhibit, which I'm very excited I was actually able to attend um, in Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm. So is this the same, are you tracking these same species, which we'll get into in a little bit, but just out of curiosity, are you tracking these same species or is it a completely different, different uh, project? Well, that's a good question. One of the species is the same, the piping plover, uh, the endangered and the near-threatened populations of piping plover. And the other species that we're very interested in is the red knot. Now, we also photograph any bird that's got a band on it because I have such big lenses. We're able to see these bands and send the information to the U.S. Geological Survey. Then send that they send the information on to the banders. And that helps with uh, looking at population dispersal in the winter and looking at habitat use. Okay. that's um, And so this you mentioned, so you're talking about habitat destruction. Um, when you... so. How does how is this research, I guess, used in terms of habitat destruction, and and who who you know who uses the information? Is this for policy? Um, you know what what's what's the intention? One of the issues that we face, for some, there are many issues, but one issue that we face is not having enough information about where these birds go. So it's very important for us to be able to document this, send it to the organizations that are responsible for following these in, these individual birds, and letting them know whether the birds survived. At times when birds don't survive, that's when people get worried if they don't see these birds again because they're banded and they think, well, their lifespan should be longer than that and we never see them again. So it brings up the question whether or not the habitat itself is a problem, uh, climate change contributing to that, whether it's things like local disruption in the habitat, or whether or not there's been some kind of of other issue that relates could be related to climate change, but it's about disease. The other thing that we have a problem with, of course, are buildings during migration. Sometimes these birds uh, mush into the the windows of some of these tall, especially in Chicago area, and then the population starts decreasing. So it's the number, it's the quality of birds, it's the type of birds. So we pass that information on to the people who are developing policies about habitat protection. And some of this stuff takes more than one year. It's as you know the. The wheels of policymaking are, they really need a lot of grease, a lot of silicone. <laughs> they need something to get them moving faster because they're always, they're always are the tail that's wagging the dog, right? 
Right, right. I, I appreciate that analogy. <laughs> um, well, I think this is really interesting um, because, I mean, you're giving us so much information here on on migration patterns on birds. But I know that, you know, you're also the first female Canadian astronaut in space. And so I'm very intrigued. What was that journey for you going from, you know, space to to research and, and species and, and habitat destruction? Like what how can you please bridge that for us? <laughs> Sure. Well, what people probably are not aware of, my first degree is I have an honors degree in zoology and agriculture. So I am uh, my first interest in science was really played out at the University of Guelph taking these courses. And from there, I went on into graduate school to do other, to look at other components of the, of the human body. And that would be the nervous system. And then went to specialized. And then I really specialized in the visual part of the nervous system. And that, uh, that mm. subspecialty is called neuroophthalmology. And with all that background, I was selected to fly in space. I did use the opportunity not just to use the experiments I was up for to do from the international community. I also did my own particular research in blood flow to the brain. What occurred to me in flight, though, and I was really, really wide open to the view of the Earth from space and how it was going to make me feel. A lot of people go up and they, you know, it's just a little bit higher and whatever, and then maybe not quite as moved. But a lot of us who go into space, really are struck in, by the edge of the earth because there is an edge to it. And the atmosphere is not very thick not when the visible light. And so we see the blackness of the universe beyond, and it's very chilling. Looking out beyond, it's into a, an area of which we know very, very little. Coming back and looking at the light that's reflected off the planet to our eyes, and it looks turquoise, and it looks a bit like the maps that we study, but it's curved. And so things are never like you see it on a map unless you're straight over something. But looking at the horizon, to me, is the is the thing of impact. When I saw all this stuff from space, I thought, well, photography is something that I've done all my life in my professional career, etc. I want to go and be like the American man Ansel Adams and go across Canada and photograph all of our national parks and, and show people what part of the of this globe we have, the incredible beauty of the land. I was faulted at the time because it didn't have some kind of a, uh, a deep meaning that we were destroying the land. I didn't have, didn't have covered bridges. I didn't have pop cans. I didn't have any of that. I wanted to show the beauty of the land because my thesis was, and still is, if you love something, you want to protect it. So I, I decided in my space flight that as soon as I was able to move away from the research work that I was doing and blood flow to the brain, that it would take all this knowledge that I had of neuro-ophthalmology, how we see and view the world around us, my passion for photography, and my passion for life on the planet. And when I grew up, I was in the Sioux, I was always looking at birds and doing little projects. I, could, I, couldn't, I really couldn't draw birds very well, <laughs> full disclosure. Uh, but I love photography. My dad and my uncle loved cameras. And it was a time when I could experiment with the safety net of family. And that's the kind of thing that I remembered, and I still to this day remember, the joy and enthusiasm that I had for exploring the world. And after my space flight, it was just like, wow, what a gift. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Um, I think I really appreciate how you, you know, kind of describe this experience, not just not just in words, but the visual aspect, you know, um, almost like very like artistic, you know what I mean? Like, like the, the feeling, mm -hmm. the expression of, of the earth and, and, you know, how, um, almost like, like art. And, and I say that because I know that through your foundation, the Roberta Bondar foundation, which I know is sort of the, 
um, the home of your exhibit, the Patterns and Parallels exhibit. And so, um, and one of the things that really struck me about the Roberta Bondar Foundation is the, you know, the emphasis on STEM, but the addition, like STEAM, right, is what you call it, the addition of arts. And so I would love if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that arts kind of bridges the all these STEM, these areas of STEM. Well, we certainly never want to run out of STEAM, I can tell you that. So when when I when I grew up, I was in a family. Uh, there to me, there's a triad, and the Sioux when I was growing up had it uh, very much in position for me to grow with the three corners covered, and that would be the arts and the science, but also athletics. I feel that the work that I do continues that strength that I developed as a young person in the Sioux. I continued right through my whole all of my careers, and it's the kind of thing that we are are. We don't do ourselves any any good if we think that we're only going to be focused on one small area and don't understand the diversity of, of experience and knowledge. They're the things that actually make progress happen. I always look at Leonardo da Vinci and I look at uh, things that Michelangelo, you had to as an artist and you don't understand how to look at the human body, for example, if you don't know how colors work and you're an artist, or if you don't know what texture means. Uh, if you don't know that kind of science, you're not as good an artist. If you are a scientist and don't have that ability to think creatively, uh, to think uh, differently, uh, that's when it becomes a problem as a scientist trying to then make, uh, make an interesting and exciting discovery. You're not, you're not in the mindset that there's something out there for you to observe. And art is very much about about observing and bringing things into ourselves and, and identifying the, identifying things and trying to recreate them into however we think they should be recreated in our personal experience. We go to a, an art exhibit and once the art does the patterns and parallels, it's on the wall. And yes, I, I, I focused everybody on this one area, but it has artistic elements to it. And the artistic elements are the things that make people pay attention, even without knowing they're there, whether they're obliques or whether they're rectangles or triangles or things that I have in groups of three or groups of five, people don't often stop to to look at these elements. It just the 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 neuroophthalmology part of it is that people's visual system will grasp this stuff. And it's interesting. If you give somebody a number of things that are threes or fives and then present them with a four or an eight, they'll take the threes and the fives every time. We like we like a little bit of disruption here. So we don't often want to keep going on in pairs. So there's some basic understanding from what used to be the same thing. Arts and science were separated a long time ago because people thought, well, you need to really study over here if you want to be an artist. If you really need to study over there if you want to be a scientist. And I, I, I do feel that that is not, was not in the best interest of developing, developing new things that would be, that would be perhaps not against traditional thinking, but it would be a, a deeper way of exploring an idea to develop some technology. Because I feel arts applied, when we apply something that we see in an exhibition, for example, and stop me if I go on too long about this, but for patterns and parallels, People say, what do you want people to get out of this exhibition? Is it the art? Is it the science? I said, well, you know, why are you separating them? It's about your journey. And you need to have uh, curiosity, which is typically science and understanding. 
and you need to have stimulation and uh, curiosity is also in arts. I always say that you create your own journey. So I put them on the wall and I'm sure I've restricted the field of view, but I haven't restricted people's ability to go through the exhibition with 50 plus images and create their own journey. Because these are birds that most people have never seen. I will guarantee you that no one has seen them all like I saw them because it's only through my eyes that people are looking at the wall. So it's that kind of seeing it applied to something that's in a, in a particular space, including the space photography, uh, which is a different aspect we can talk about if you want, uh, that they will create their own journey. And that journey is about a diverse life experience. And this Patterns and Parallels is part of their life journey. You know, I, I really appreciate it. I think everything you just said, I'll never cut you off. No, <laughs> not ever. too I bad. Everything you have to say. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think that's fascinating. I love this idea of um, um, like just the intention behind it, you know, how our brains actually pick up on this information and how that was kind of slightly embedded into the actual exhibit. And maybe I'm curious about the title, like Patterns and Parallels. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that title for the exhibit? Well, it wasn't easy. Uh, I... I I give all the titles, whether it's my the book I'm doing uh, that is based on the exhibition or the exhibition. This is something that's been 10 years in, in the process, probably more than 10 years. And during that decade, we worked with NASA. I became a, a principal investigator at NASA. I mean, it's a volunteer thing, but as, a, as the president of the foundation that bears my name, I was able to easily, in fact, I know the people at NASA and they you can't trust an astronaut to do something with the view they had, then there's something wrong with life. Uh, but they were very, very good. <laughs> and they said, okay, give us some images that you'd like. And so we go like, okay, all right, so let's follow seven species worldwide. Just seven. Doesn't sound like a lot. Seven symbolic species. We have only been able to do three in this exhibition. So when I was looking at it, I thought, well, we need to have, we need to have a bird that we can see from the air so I can photograph some abstracts and, and images of the birds inter interacting with their environment because people never see that people don't go in a helicopter and photograph unless you're parks canada or canadian wildlife services or whatever you don't go out there to do that i mean people just don't uh so i thought i will do that and so i would charter helicopters and go over these places so i did the lester flamingo in africa and then the whooping crane in north america and while i was doing i was thinking about eastern hemisphere western hemisphere i was thinking about the fact that whooping cranes are solitary behaviors and the lesser flamingos are very much group behaviors. Like the bigger the, the bigger the flock, the healthier they are. And so the thousands of them like group think who's going to lay their eggs this year. Whereas the whooping cranes are, are so different. But we can see them both in the air. One's pink, one's white. And I started looking at the, the various patterns in the aerial images, the patterns of the corridors in the space images. I started looking at the various sort of artistic components and then I thought, you know, the word parallel is very appropriate here because we put the latitude and longitude on all these images so that people know that I do everything that's got a double meaning. So patterns and parallels really speaks to us also as a life form because, quite frankly, human beings, human behaviors, that the thing we value most is human life, where it should be. And bird life would be, you know, another thing to to look at. But when it comes down to human life, uh, human life is something everybody can can recognize and associate themselves with. So I thought it's okay. So there are parallels of latitude and longitude where these birds are, 
and where they go. And there are parallels to their fragility and our fragility. There are patterns that we see from space that are so different from the patterns that we see from the air and the very restricted patterns we see on the ground, because we're looking like straight out of the horizon. But from space and the International Space Station or the old space shuttle, it was 1,200 kilometers straight out one window, especially the cupola, which is where we get a lot of these images. So I would ask NASA, this, for these seven species, I'd say, okay, what I want is I want a straight down shot, which is called a nadir, N-A-D-I-R shot. I want to have a high oblique shot so, it's, so I can get the edge of the Earth in. I want to have uh, it in the nesting area. I want to have it on stopover areas. So pretty soon, you're running up to well over 50 sites for these astronauts to photograph. And I gave them how much cloud cover I was happy with. I gave the angle of the sun, et cetera, et cetera. So it ended up taking about 10 years, plus going back in time. There's some images on that wall, I think it were taken in 2002, have never been taken again because the lake has never looked like it. Lake Natron, where the lesser flamingo nests. I mean, there's just so much to this exhibition. So that's why I thought the title was good. And then the cutaway is the great imperative to survive, which means all of us, the great imperative for life to survive. So people are able to see on the wall this progression of life across these three species, looking at a, the biggest bird in North America, this biggest flighted bird in North America, the whooping crane at five feet tall, seven foot wingspan. The one in, in Africa, the lesser flamingo, is a little bit smaller, but still a, a, a fair-sized bird. And then the little tiny piping plover you can put in your hand that is endangered because what the heck? It starts to breathe on Wasaga Beach, really. <laughs> Doesn't expect to get crushed. So there, that's how it got the title. That's kind of the short answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. And I think, again, I think for me, it's always it always comes down to intentionality, you know, and, and I love to hear these answers because, you know, as someone who went through the exhibit and I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm like, yeah, I, I felt that. I felt that going through the exhibit and I felt that with the photos and, and they're very beautiful. And those some of those shots of, of um, like the shots from space, right? Like the edge of the earth, like you said, like I remember some of those shots and they were, yeah, like just absolutely beautiful, but it's the story that's there. And, and like you said, it is kind of that connection to humanity, right? Like walking through that exhibit and, and even through animals, understanding that that is part of our humanity, that is part of our relationship with, with humanity, right. with the world and et cetera. And, and so, yeah, I love the whole intention of it. I think it's, I think it's really, really wonderful. Um, you mentioned, so you mentioned you have a book coming out as well. Um, and is that focused just, is that more like research or is it also like encompassing the aspects of the, the exhibition as well? It's, it can be used for, <coughs> pardon me. Sorry, I just, pardon me, it's a, <laughs> No problem. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, you don't want to run a planet with water, so why not? Uh, <laughs> actually, the, the book the book actually started first in, in one way, and it doesn't include the piping plover. That's for another another book. I wanted to have a book with the, the two large birds first. Uh, so it's about the whooping crane and the lesser flamingo, and it is an art book in the sense that these images that are on the wall are all in the book. But there are a lot more than that because I cover a lot more in, in the book. I mean, there are 50-plus images on the wall, including the piping plover. I mean, you put more than that in a, in a, in a book. But there's a, there is text in there that describes some of the things that people would find interesting about the lesser flamingo and about the whooping crane and that people might not be familiar with. And sometimes it's hard to find bits and pieces of this information. So 
sending people up for a trivia quiz. <laughs> you know, they can take this stuff. But I'm hopefully they'll they'll love the the images in the book. Uh, it's it's it should be a, a very nice book for people to have. It's not going to be uh, as expensive as most art books are. We wanted to keep the price down so people could afford this. Uh, but it's uh, I, I like the way it's, the direction it's going, and it'll be out in 2024. And it's the title of it's a little different. Uh, the first part of the title is called Space for Birds. I wonder why. <laughs> so, Space for Birds, and the cutaway line is patterns and parallels of beauty and flight. Mm, that's so it's really all nice. it's all a positive tone thing. But nonetheless, in the book, there are, there's reference to why these birds are endangered or they're threatened. And it's not hitting people in the head with a stick and saying, you are bad, bad, bad. <laughs> but rather, they're symbolic of what all migratory birds will go through, whether it's a hummingbird or, or, or an arctic tern. It's the fact that they need habitat, they need some place to rest, and that they are they, they look very fragile because they are. They have hollow bones and they have these feathers. Now, they can fly and we can't, so they got something we can't do. Nonetheless, I think the idea of environmental ethics here is the, is the bottom line. And the other part of it, too, uh, and perhaps you're going to talk about this, is a connection to good mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and as a physician, especially as a neurologist, I think about mental health as not being a negative statement, and most people do. I look at physical health as not being a negative statement, or spiritual health, whatever the health, health is health, whether it's good health or bad health. <clears throat> so when we talk about good mental health, that's a good thing to do. The natural environment is a wonderful place to connect to and try to just decompress because in a true environment where there's not a lot of human construct, and I don't mean that there wouldn't be a bridge to cross, a little babbling brook, I don't mean that kind of stuff, but one can be away from concrete barriers, barriers to thinking and barriers to experience. Some people may be too afraid to get into that because all they're used to is is a, a city environment, and, uh, and they're not they're not into the suburbs or not interested in going north at all. But we live in a very precious country here, and also North America itself has so many areas of natural wildlife refuges, national parks, uh, city parks, where people can actually go out and they can see trees and the leaves move in the wind. They have movement to them. There's life that is shared across a number of different forms of life and that it's interdependent the 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 way that our human life is we're interdependent too but we don't really recognize it that much because we're too busy trying to say that one culture is better than another or one religion it should be supreme or it's all it's all has to do with with what human beings have set themselves up over millennia to be biased against the natural world to me is not biased the natural world has a climate that it deals with it has altitude that it deals with but it will move in and out of those things and it will shift itself without without human intervention most of the time not necessarily without human impact so birds are things that sort of go from one area to another so when people are in the natural environment they don't have to be stressed by things that they associate with human construct, they can look at something and get their mind off something else. They can look at, and that's why in the foundation we have what's called the Bonder Challenges, where it's not just for, for kids and youth and people in school. We've run this program for seniors, et cetera. 
where people for the first time, I know that new, new Canadians see this or, or people new to the country, trees, they have different shapes. And they've not spent a lot of time because they've been in places where camp means a bad thing instead of in North America where it usually means a fun thing. So we have to watch how we present this stuff. So through the Bonder Challenges, we talk to people about how do you share the emotion of something you see that's positive? How, how do you share it with somebody else? Because I don't know what you're thinking. I can't see what you see. The only way I can see what you see is if you show me. And yes, you can paint, but it's not quite the same thing. It may be good and it may be perfect for, for the situation. We think because a lot of people have access to cameras that they would want to maybe use them a little better. We try to, to teach people different shapes to leaves. Like how many different colors of greens do you see straight ahead of you? Like How tall is that tree? Can you gauge how tall that tree is? What happens? Why are the leaves going yellow this time of year? Or why are some of the trees red? And not? So there are all these things, but it's leading up to observation. It's leading up to, to curiosity. And all those things allow people to express themselves creatively, allow people to apply things in technology, and allow people to really to keep that curiosity of what we call curiosity of youth ongoing because that's what we need in life. It's the time when we can move beyond a dark, depressing mindset and move out and just fill our lungs with fresh air and just basically allow ourselves to expand our, our, our role in the world because we're not sometimes not separate from the natural world, but the natural world is not something that we've created. We have not really created the trees. Right. I, I mean, I love all of that so much. Um, I'm actually a certified mindfulness meditation guide, and I've been practicing meditation for quite a few years. And so, you know, hearing all this is very, it's very meditative. And it's kind of yes. the point of, you know, mindfulness meditation. It's, it's your, it's about connection within, but connection without as well, like around you and how you're connecting with the natural world, the physical world, the spiritual world. So I, I absolutely love hearing all of that. Um, maybe real quick, just to close off. So your exhibit was, so it was in Sault Ste. Marie. I believe it started there. And where is it heading now? Yes, I try to launch. Everyone loves that term when you're an astronaut. <laughs> I try to launch uh, new <laughs> exhibitions in my hometown because that's where, that's where I grew up. And I feel, I still feel that I belong to the community. But I feel that it's a community that gets bypassed a lot because people tend to draw a straight line between Sudbury and Thunder Bay and the Sioux is so beautiful. I don't know what's, what's wrong with people. <laughs> really, I mean, like, really? Go down to the Sioux. So I, I launch it there. And then because there is a science of migration of birds and there's the themes that Science North was working on and just down the road three hours from the Sioux, it was easy for Science North to say, hey, we'll build, we'll build. And they did. They built a, a, a sort of an enclosure kind of uh, area in their main lobby. So that's freely open to the public. Uh, the rest of you, you know, pay admission to go and do the other things in Science North. But it allows anybody and everybody who just goes through the front door of Science North without being intimidated that maybe they don't have enough money for the day, but they can see this exhibition and come away with a, a, a different experience. And they can go back as many times as they want. From Science North, we are going to bring it back to Toronto that Art always needs to have a rest. <laughs> so the rest stop here is back in Toronto, uh, the foundation uh, uh, area. And we're going to then, you know, sometimes there are little scrapes and scratches and things, and we fix things up. 
and then it'll be on the road again. It's I believe it's going to Niagara Falls uh, at the end of 2024. We have uh, people across Canada that want it. So we're just doing the logistics right now because people want it in Manitoba, Alberta, and BC. Uh, we haven't quite got the East Coast uh, set up yet, but we certainly have other places in Ontario as well. So I, for the next two to three years, and these are all sublimated metal, as you know, they weren't, the, they're not the traditional way of framing with a mat and stuff in the front. I mean, mm-hmm. that would be prohibitively expensive, number one, to cart it everywhere, difficult to hang, and also it's dangerous. I mean, I don't want a piece of glass up there for some child to run into or to bang on. Uh, the metal stuff is, is art. You don't want to be scratching your name on it or doing graffiti on it, but it's a little more resilient and certainly it's lighter and, and it's framed so it floats off the wall the way birds float, the way astronauts yeah. float. So we have all kinds of subtle things going on here. You know, you can float off the corner of, of the of the of the page and think about what's going on outside the frame. No, I, I, yeah, I, I love that. And I noticed that too. Like it is like the pieces when they're on the, like, they're beautiful. Like it's, 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 it is that it is part of the experience. Like it is, it's, it's, it's really, really beautiful. Um, my one last final question, just cause you mentioned, you know, how you prefer to, how you wanted to launch in your hometown in Sault Ste. Marie, cause you're part of the community. And so, you know, for myself, um, you know, I'm also a small town, but I definitely go, you know, the more urban places all the time. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, why is it so, why is it for you so important to be giving back to your community? Well, my grandparents, both on my father's side and my mother's side, picked the Sioux when they came to this country as immigrants. And both my parents were born in the Sioux. I grew up in the Sioux and was at the Y. I was in church groups. I was in athletics up to my eyebrows. And that provided, and also worked at the the local insect laboratory for, for, for six summers, actually, beginning graduate school. So I got my formative training there, and there's a lot going on in, in, in when I, we say smaller communities, we're, we're talking not huge metropolitan areas, but the Sioux at around 75,000 has a university, it has a, has a wonderful college as well, and it has, it's, it's situated on the corner of Lake Huron, where it goes into Lake Superior, I mean, it's right across the bridge, place to, to, to be from, and not a place, it's a great place to visit, so when when it comes time to with the art piece, my mother was one of the people, we didn't have a lot of money, but my mother believed in the art gallery. She went back to school for seven years and got her degree through Laurentian, which was that part of, of Laurentian became Algoma University on its own. So my mother graduated from there after seven years of school in Toronto in the summer, etc. And she had the, she was head of the business and commerce and, and mentored the cheerleaders, but she always had this thing about art she was very artistic she was writing poetry and so was my grandfather and I think this side of her wanted that art gallery of Algoma and so tried very hard to be uh, a person that would would help it grow uh, in its early stages uh, so I'm proud when to go into the 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 AGA the art gallery of Algoma I see that, that there's a, a list of all the original people who believed in this and my mother's name is there and and it makes me feel it just makes me feel that I'm carrying on the the tradition of, of my family the belief in athletics uh, because it is a very athletic community there's a lot of hockey going on for sure uh, but a belief in, in in science there's a lot of research going on with the Great Lakes Forestry Institute and a belief in the arts 
because there's all kinds of art courses at the university and the college. There's places uh, that the group of seven uh, went to to do their paintings. So it's not it's not an abnormal thing to think about a community having these three pillars, and quite often the arts is not necessarily one that people think is as much value, but it is for all the reasons we've discussed. And I want to mm-hmm. I want to ensure that that tradition continues as much as I can in my life to know, to have people know that if I, if Roberta Bonder believes in it, well, maybe we should, we should look at this because she's not, she doesn't go in for small things and she goes in for things that, that have some value to community and individuals. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you so much for everything and all that you're offering. I'm very excited for the exhibit. Very excited for your book next year, too. So I'll be on the lookout for that. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today, and we will see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.